Well, good morning. Somebody's happy. Well, last day of the year. Looking ahead, looking back and looking ahead, and that's part of what I'm going to try and accomplish the next two weeks. And so today, let's look back together at what God has done for each of us. And next week, we'll look ahead and see what God wants us to be doing in the year ahead. That's how we're going to approach our, our time this morning. If you don't have a handout, are we out in the back? Probably should make some more copies. You should have a handout if you can, um, because there's, there's going to be a lot of content this morning. And my goal is not, not to overwhelm you. I don't want to do that. But I do want to paint a really good picture of what God has done. And it's, it's significant. And so I, I picked the topic, perseverance, or perseverance of the saints. You may have heard that term before. I found that as I get more and more, what I would say, chronologically enhanced. And uh, I'm really starting to feel that more and more. I think more and more about persevering in the faith. Or another way of saying it is, I want to finish strong. And uh, I thought it would be easier the older I got, but actually, I, I guess I could say it's harder. It's easy to give up, to not try hard, and just pretty much say, okay, once saved, always saved. Nothing matters after that. Well, you know what? That's not biblical. There is a truth associated with it, but it's not biblical. Pretty much say, let go and let God, in this case, is not biblical either. There's kind of a biblical antimony or paradox. Those are two words that kind of go together. In the Bible, it says God does it all. But it also says I have to persevere. God's part, my part. So the question becomes, what is it that God does and what is it that I'm supposed to do. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, seems to be a contradiction sometimes. But it isn't. It's a biblical truth. So the sermon actually started out as kind of a sermon for me. But you know what? It's very, very appropriate for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. There's some biblical terms and phrases to consider in the epistles that kind, of, that kind of struck me through the years. Listen to these. 
Fight the good fight. Stand firm. Endure hardship. Keep the faith. Keep a good conscience. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Apply with all diligence. All admonitions and exhortations that, that you read in First and Second Timothy and Second Peter and some of the other epistles. And they brought me to the point where I'm asking myself about this fight. How do these things stand with regard to the doctrine of perseverance? The once saved, always saved, and eternal security verses, we always use some scripture. What about all the scriptures that address what we're supposed to be doing? And then some questions come to my mind year after year as I get older and older. Well, what happens if I stop fighting? What happens if I don't stand firm? What happens if I take the easy road and don't endure hardship or keep a good conscience? Just what part does God play in all this and what part do I play? How is this supposed to work scripturally and in principle and then truly in my life in a very real way? And so in the next two weeks, I'm going to try and respond to my inner questions and share with you what scripture says. But let's pray first, because I'm going to need a lot of help from the Spirit. So you guys pray with me so that that can happen, okay? Father, we thank you. Mm, your word, so good. Jesus, when you prayed to the Father, you said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's what we pray for this morning. So Holy Spirit, help us to do that. Help me to explain and, and uh, put forth truth from your word and then work in all of our hearts and press it on our hearts to conform us more and more to our Savior, to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, um, as I'm trying to figure out, well, how, how should I go about this? I think it's appropriate to spend just a little bit of time defining what the term is all about, perseverance. And then I'll look at some passages together with you on referencing perseverance or endurance. And then after that, We'll look at a chain of events in our spiritual life and where perseverance fits there. And then we'll spend some time on some misconceptions that may exist about perseverance of the saints. First, the meaning of the term. It's the Greek word. I'll probably destroy this in the Greek, so bear with me. It's upomone, upomone. And the one thing that I discovered was there are two English words that are used by the translators for this very same Greek word. And so there's a lot of passages that have both of these words in it, perseverance and endurance. Two English words but one Greek word. Now, we've seen that before with other Greek words like test and tempt. 
same word, context determines which English word the translators use, okay? So whenever you see passages with perseverance and endurance, very likely it's the same Greek word. Perseverance and endurance. Perseverance is defined <clears throat> as continuance till the end. Endurance is defined as the ability to withstand hardship or adversity. The difference between the two in English is perseverance is remaining steady in hopes to finish, while endurance is just trying not to wear out. <clears throat> perseverance is an ongoing active decision in dynamic faith. The words are very, very interesting, and when you see them used, the reason there are two English words that are used is because of the context. Trying to persevere to the end versus endure something that's happening, trials and tribulations. <coughs> because of the central significance and Perseverance is often in the pastorals. It's set alongside Christian attitudes of faith and love. You'll see those things often referenced together in verses and passages. Hope directs one gaze, one's gaze more to the future. Persevere means that you're going all the way to the end. It's close to hope but it's not the same. The phrase steadfastness of hope in 1 Thessalonians expresses the way in which Christian hope seeks to be steadfast or persevere under uncertainty and threat. Now here's a couple of verses, and I've put them on, on your sheet, <clears throat> that use these words. They're one, they're just a few of many. I mean, there are, a, there are a lot of verses that talk about persevering and enduring. Luke 8, 15. But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Luke 21, 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. <clears throat> Romans 2.7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Romans 8.25, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure we will also reign with him. One of the verses we worked on in Wednesday night, James 1.12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then finally, one of the most comprehensive passages in Scripture is Romans 8. Verses 28 to 39. 
So turn there with me, because we're going to start working on that passage as a foundation for our talk this morning. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, <clears throat> so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he called, and these he, whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, if we keep reading down through the, the passage, you're going to see a whole list of things that pretty much tell you perseverance is going to happen, even though there's all kinds of things working against you. God will help you persevere. But for now, I want to use the, the first couple of verses as a foundation. And on your sheets, I have the five things that are called out in the passage. For new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Foreknowledge and predestination deal with the prior determination of God justification, glorification, and uh, uh, they deal with more of the application of, of that. And then we fill in the other biblical aspects. That's what I'm going to do now. We're going to fill that in, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about each one of them. So we could say... Justification is there, but it presupposes faith. So in that blank space before justified, you could put faith. And before faith, there's something called regeneration. So in the space before faith, you could, you could put regeneration there. Then the two blanks after justified... Once you're justified, you could put adopted. Only justified people are admitted to God's spiritual family. <clears throat> and then sanctification. Sanctification happens before justification, or before um, glorification. Therefore, in the final list, it should, on your sheets there, read foreknowledge predestination, calling, regeneration, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. That's the sequence. Right? Are you with me? That's a lot. That's a lot. So I want to I wanna just spend a couple of minutes with a paragraph or so on each of these things, just to make sure we understand, <clears throat> because it's going to lead up to the main point of everything we're going to talk about this week and next week. So let's, let's look at the first term there, foreknowledge. It's pr 
probably the most frequently misunderstood term. It has two parts, for and knowledge. A lot of people either have been taught or assume it means God looks ahead and he knows what's going to happen. And that's not necessarily the best definition. It does not say that God foreknew what certain of his creatures would do. It's not talking about human actions at all. It's speaking entirely of what God does. Each of the terms here is like that. They're all what God does. God foreknew. God predestined. God called. God justified. God glorified. The object of divine foreknowledge is not the actions of certain people, but the people themselves. Well, this is important. It's, it's a very significant distinction. <clears throat> In this sense, it means God has fixed a special attention upon certain people or has loved them in a saving way. Foreknowledge means salvation has its origin in the mind of God, not man. To know, in the biblical sense, is to love. Like when it says Adam knew his wife, Eve. doesn't mean he knew about her. It has a very personal relationship. Foreknowledge focuses our attention on the everlasting love of God according to which some persons are graciously chosen to be conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. To foreknow is to forelove. That's the sense in the passage. Are you with me? That's important. Now, depending on, I'll just pause here for a second for a lot of these things. Depending on, on your background or how much you're familiar with certain parts of Scripture, there may be some things that we're going to get into that you either haven't heard before or you were never quite sure about. And that's okay. All right? That's all right. That's why we come and we preach from God's Word so that you can grow more and more in the truth. Second term is predestination. <clears throat> a lot of times people think that it's the same as foreknowledge. It's not. It's a totally different thing. Predestination carries us to another step further. It also has two parts. Pre, beforehand. Destiny is the second part. It means to determine a person's destiny beforehand. That's different than foreknowledge. It tells us, having fixed his distinguishing love upon us, God next appointed us to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The third term is calling. There's a calling that happens. And you may have heard the description of this term in scripture as being there's a general call and there's an effectual call. 
It's an invitation to people to repent and turn to Jesus to be saved. When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, that's a general call. But there is a problem associated with it, and that is none of us left to our own are going to respond positively to that. So there are other passages that go with it, such as John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a different kind of call. That's an effectual call. That's a call that's going to have results. It's internal, it's specific, and it's what we call effectual. It will have its desired effects. It not only issues the invitation, but it provides the ability and a willingness to respond. An example of something like that is when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. What happened? Lazarus responded. He was dead. But he responded because the call gave him life. And that leads us to the next term, regeneration. When we say God's call brings forth life, what we mean is God brings forth life in the one who is called. The next critical step here is how dead men and women, spiritually dead men and women, are brought to life. And there's a term associated with this that's biblical that you've probably heard called born again born again. And passages associated with born again, John 1.13. Children born of natural descent, not of human decision or of the will of man, but born of God. John 3.3. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For new, predestined, called, born again, or regenerated. All those things are done by God, right? All of them. That's important. Now we come to faith. And you could have their faith and repentance. The immediate effect of the divine regeneration is the sinner now abhors the sin he once cherished, And he trusts in Christ for his salvation. Repenting and turning to Christ in faith. These are both things we do. God does not repent for us, nor does he believe for us. We must repent. We must believe. Nevertheless, both repentance and faith occur only because of God's work of regeneration, of being born again. 
they both fall under a term you've heard, you've heard before called conversion. This is when conversion happens. It means turning around. <clears throat> and it happens as a result of being born again. The next term is justification. Once that happens, we are justified. It's an, it's an act that's done by God. It's a what you would call a judicial act, something God does, not us. It's the judicial function where God declares sinful men and women to be in a right standing before him, not on a basis of their own merit, but based on something he's done, what Jesus Christ has done. He bore their punishment and took the penalty of sin upon himself. We're saved by grace, through faith, not by works, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast, right? That's the passage out of Ephesians. Once that happens, we're adopted. Again, that's another kind of judicial act. We're adopted into the family of God. It differs from justification in that it's not just dealing with our standing before God, before the bar of God's justice. It has, us, it has to do with coming into his family with all the blessings that entails. Sons and daughters of Christ and God. And then we get to sanctification. Sanctification is a process which has, has to do with being given a new nature by God, we can and must cooperate. Dave likes to call this active submission. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 is a good passage here. It says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The relationship here is that because God's work, because God works, we work. And really the truth that comes out of this, and we're going to spend more time on this particular part of the chain, because it's where persistence applies the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is from God. And then finally, we get to the last step, which we have not experienced yet. Everything else, if you're here and you're a believer in Christ this morning, has happened and is happening. The last thing is glorification. It's our ultimate spiritual destiny. It means to become like Jesus Christ as fully and gloriously as possible. And it's interesting, in the Romans passage, he actually mentions it, if you will, in the past tense, as if it's already happened. Right? It's a done deal. Okay, today's main point, based on all of that, based on the fact that 
the decisive acts in the sequence are God's. Foreknew, predestined, called, regenerated, faith, justified, adopted, sanctified, glorified. Most of those are very solely acts of God, and those that we participate in are only done because of what God has done. That's a big deal. Without them, not one of us would be saved. Do we have to believe? Of course we do. But even faith is of God, as it is better to say, it's the result of working in us. Again, it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God not by works, so no one can boast. On the other hand, if you keep reading through that passage, it says we're created for good works. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith, by grace, through faith, but you're created for good works. And that's part of the sanctification and perseverance process. When we're first saved, and I know I was like this, we think quite naturally we had a great deal to do with it, perhaps because of wrong or shallow teaching, but more likely because at that stage in my life, I knew more about my own thoughts and feelings than I did about God. So that's not unusual. However, the longer we're Christians, the further we move from that, and we begin to realize as we learn more about God's word, it's all about God. The main point, all of this is from God. How does that relate to perseverance? Because we're going to find, as we spend time, we're going to find perseverance and sanctification go hand in hand, and both happen because God and his spirit is working in us to help them happen. Now, here's the big deal. Here's, here's what's, I think, important. There are times in our lives when we sit back and we kind of question ourselves. We kind of go, either because of a sinful lifestyle or some other thing going on, we kind of go, am I really saved? Can I really be saved at the end? And we have doubts and worries. Well, if we don't understand how we ever got to that point to begin with, it can be very natural to have those feelings. What I want you to appreciate this morning is you don't need to have those feelings unless they're deserved, unless there is a problem. But if you understand all that God has done, leading up to the point where you're at as a believer and you're going through the sanctification process, God did it, and he's going to complete it. And what you need to do, like Dave would say, is actively submit to the sanctification process that God wants you to go through 
to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. That is a big deal. Now that, for me, if you remember my intro, that's part of the issue of what I'm kind of working through, and I just need to be reminded, using God's word, where am I at in the scheme of things? And he's going to help pull me out to the end, to the point of glorification. Here's a story that was in uh, a book that I'm, I'm relying heavily on as I'm talking through this this morning. <clears throat> and it's called The Doctrines of Grace. Now, Dave thoughtfully has this as one of the books on the wall in the, that, that are recommended reading. And I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough how strongly I would recommend every single person in here to get a copy and read this. It's probably one of the better written. There's a lot of literature written on all this, but this is probably one of the best explained as to what's going on in this whole chain of events. The Doctrines of Grace by James Montgomery Boyce and Philip Graham Ryken. Most excellent book. Get it. I think you would you would really enjoy it. In there is this story that I'm going to read, which I, I just love. The first time I read it, I just went, yes, that's great. References uh, Harry A. Ironside. I don't know if you've heard of Ironside. Some of you may have heard of him. <clears throat> great theologian, great Bible teacher. He told a story about an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony. And that, that old Christian told how God had sought him out, found him, had loved him, called him, saved him, delivered him, cleansed him, healed him with a great witness to the grace, power, and glory of God. But after the meeting, a rather legalistic Christian took him aside and criticized his testimony, as some Christians like to do. He said, I appreciated all you said about what God did for you, but you didn't mention anything about your part in it. Salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. Oh, yes, the older Christian said. I apologize for that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away. And his part was running after me until he caught me. Now, if we really get that, if we understand that, we understand a great deal about the gospel. We've all run away. But God has set his, his gracious love upon us, predestined us to become like Jesus, called us to faith and repentance, justified us, adopted us as his spiritual sons and daughters, began a work of sanctification within us that will continue until the day of Jesus Christ and glorified us, so certain of completion is his plan. That is good news. That is really good news. And my hope is you would be encouraged by that. And if there's some things in that, that chain or that sequence that you're not comfortable with, okay. 
I'm just telling you what God says. And then we'll work through it together. We'll come to a point where you will be excited about what God has done. So the relationship now between sanctification and perseverance. Believers are eternally secure because God preserves his saints and keeps them secure by means of perseverance in faith. Stephen taught in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1.5 it says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are protected. And it's God's power that does the keeping. Now, the doctrine of the saints, perseverance and security, when correctly understood, promotes vigilance, not carelessness. It motivates godliness, not sloth and indulgence. The doctrine teaches that where God gives genuine faith, there will be reliable evidences. Or, as it said in the gospel, you will know them by their fruit. The evidence are, evidences are proof that a, that a sinner or a saint now possesses the kind of faith that can save. Or, as the old reformers used to say, faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Right? Like James says, faith without works is a dead faith. Doesn't mean it saved you, but it does mean if you are saved, there should be fruit and there should be something that is visible and actually helps you with your own reassurance. It's important that we would know this doctrine of perseverance does not drive us to holiness by the fear of failing every moment. Instead, it produces holiness by faith working through love. We need to understand God is honored because we acknowledge our security is traced to his power and purposes, not to any personal decision. When you and I persevere, we're actually showing the word, the world the power of God and we're glorifying God for his intercession. The Bible stresses the believer's security while at the same time calling for diligence and perseverance. There is something we're supposed to be doing, but we do it in the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. When God caused us to be born again, we began a new relationship with God and a new relationship toward the world. The reality of our salvation relationship is lived out, and we are progressively sanctified by God's Spirit. There's the term, progressive sanctification. You've heard it, right? It's progressive. You don't believe and are born again and express faith and snap your fingers and everything is 100% done. That's not how it works. There's a process called progressive sanctification whereby the Spirit progressively 
conforms you to the image and person of Jesus Christ. And if you remember back in the predestined passage in Romans 8, we were predestined to be conformed to the image and person of Jesus Christ. To realize and encourage each other about this is what we should be about this morning. To, use, to be used by God to help strengthen, encourage, exhort each other, that's the goal. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is with God's word. Reminding each of us of his truth, the implications of that truth, at our justification, we receive the perfect status of righteousness before God. We need to regard sanctification as taking our justification seriously. That's how we should be thinking of it. So much more. I don't have time to do it all, but I will have some more time next week, and I will be reviewing uh, we'll be reviewing some of this. Some passages to confirm that this is going to happen. Philippians 1.6. I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will bring it to pass. In Jude 24, which you've heard us many times use at the end of the services, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand, not let you stand, make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. All passages that confirm God is going to complete what he started. You need to understand that, you need to be part of that, and you need to be submitting, actively submitting to the Spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Okay? Now to close it up, just a couple of couple of things about common misunderstandings regarding this particular theology or doctrine. They're on the back of your sheets. Three common misunderstandings. Perseverance does not mean that Christians are exempted from all spiritual danger just because they're Christians. Actually, on the contrary, the opposite's true. Probably even in greater danger, because now the world and the devil will doggedly be set against you and will try to destroy you if they could. But that's not possible. <clears throat> if we go and read the last part, of chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, we're going to see Paul list 17 things that if they had their way, 
would destroy us or damage us, but the love of Christ is greater, and that will not happen. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, etc. <clears throat> but in spite of those hostile forces, the Christian will be kept by God's power and love. It's because of us facing those spiritual dangers, this doctrine of perseverance is important. But it doesn't mean we're not going to be facing spiritual danger. The second misconception, perseverance does not mean that Christians are always kept from falling into sin just because they're Christians. Now we've got a lot of examples in Scripture. Noah, drunkenness. Abraham lied about his wife. David, adultery, murder. Peter denies the Lord. But that doesn't mean they won't persevere. Peter is probably the best example. And even though he denied the Lord, the Lord said, Satan wanted to sift you, but I prayed for you. And you will. You will be restored and work and lead your brothers in the faith. Three, perseverance does not mean that those who merely profess Christ without actually being born again are secure. <clears throat> and we live in a day today when a lot of people claim to be Christians but really are not, are not. They're destitute of any true knowledge of faith and genuine experience or character. A certain number of people know a great deal about religion, can even pass in a questioning or examination for church membership, but it's no guarantee that they're actually saved. <clears throat> Only born-again people are saved. That's why there's a number of scriptures and warnings that we give diligent attention to make sure of our calling and election. Jesus said, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We're able to stand firm because God perseveres with us. The doctrine of perseverance does not lead to a false assurance or presumption. Though some who claim to be saved presume on God by their sinful lifestyles and willful disobedience, perseverance does not make us lazy. The doctrine of perseverance is precisely what Paul declared it to be in Romans 8. Namely, those whom God has foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son will indeed come to that great consummation. They will be harassed, constantly tempted. Frequently they will fail. Nevertheless, in the end, we will be with Jesus and will be made like him because that's the destiny God in his sovereignty and inexplicable love predetermined for us. And because he accomplishes this through his sovereign acts of calling, regenerating, justifying, 
and glorifying the believer. Amen? That's a good way to end the year. You know that? We can look back and we can say, this is what God has done, and it's good. And I will enjoy obeying and living out and being used by the Spirit to live a life of righteousness, to help be part of his body, family of God, and look forward with hope to the day when Jesus returns. Let's pray.